Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus didn't say, Blessed are the peace hopers, or the peace dreamers, or the peace lovers. He didn't even say, Blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers. So today we're going to talk about how we as the church are called to be peacemakers. We're going to talk about the connection between peace and justice, that important connection. And we're going to talk about how being peacemakers for us is going to take choosing courage over comfort. Courage over comfort. But before we dig into all of that, I want us to pray. Because I don't think we can do any of this on our own. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the gift of this day. Thank you that you're present in it. Thank you that you promise to be our guide and our hope and our strength. I pray that as we have this conversation, which can be a difficult one, I pray that you help us be peacemakers. God, I don't think we can do this on our own. We need your help. And so be with us as you promise in your word that you are with us and you are for us. And we pray this in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the things that I love about my dad, one of the most endearing things about my dad is how he says goodbye. My dad was shaped by and influenced greatly by the 1960s, a decade that uh, included Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis being stopped crossing a bridge in Selma, the Kennedy assassinations, the Vietnam War, Woodstock, and chance of all we are saying is give peace a chance. And so my dad, still to this day, I remember it growing up, and he still does, when I leave his house, he doesn't say goodbye. He simply says, peace. So from a very early age, I remember thinking, peace is something you take into the world. Peace is something you go make in your relationships and your interactions. As you're going, make peace. So it's important that when we talk about this, when we talk about peacemaking, that we're aiming at the right thing. And that we're not setting the bar too low when we're talking about being peacemakers. Martin Luther King Jr. made this interesting distinction between what he calls the devil's peace and God's true peace. See, there's this counterfeit peace that exists when people are pacified, when people are tired and they're too beat up to engage in the fight and everything seems kind of calm. Have you ever been there where things are kind of calm, kind of peaceful? Maybe the kids are doing kind of okay, your marriage is kind of okay, your relationships with your parents, it's kind of okay. Everything's kind of calm. Maybe that's how you feel right now, but peace, as it's translated in the Bible, is more than that. It's more than just a calm okayness. It's different and it's better than that. The biblical word for peace is shalom. Think of it this way. If I took a thousand threads and threw them on a table, that wouldn't make a fabric. That would just be a thousand threads in proximity to each other. Threads become a fabric when they're woven together over, under, through, becoming interconnected to each other. God made this world, as Pastor Tim Keller describes it, as a beautiful, harmonious, knit, webbed together, interdependent relationship with each other, where one necessarily impacts the other, like a fabric. One part of the fabric necessarily impacts the other. And Genesis chapter 1 and 2 describe how God created this world. It says he created the heavens and the earth, and he did so in a way where all the moving pieces work together in perfect harmony and peace. Shalom. 
like a symphony where everyone's playing a different instrument, but it all is coming together to make one thing, like threads coming together to make a fabric. And he invited people to be blessed as they participated in it. And there was this place that was defined by that relationship, that webbing together of right relationship with God and people and people and each other, and that place was Eden. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see people break that harmony, decide right or wrong for themselves rather than in union with God. People forgot what they were made for, and they were left outside of the peace of Eden. And maybe you're new to all this. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not sure if you believe the the scriptures. Maybe someone sent you this link and you're not sure about any of this. And if that's you, I'm so thankful that you're with us. My hope is Summit is a place where you can ask as many questions as you need to for as long as you have to. But whether you're a Christian or not, I think we can all agree this, what we're living in, is not Eden. It's not a harmonious, knit-together fabric. So much has changed in our lives, in part due to COVID. So many things about how we want to move through the world are different and we're uncomfortable. I saw a study that said as of June, 40% of people in the U.S. are reporting dealing with mental health or substance abuse issues. That's a sharp increase upward. A recent Gallup poll said a record high 77% of people in our country say we're divided. You know what that means? It means we as a country can't even agree that we're divided. And there are times in the face of this reality, Christian or not, where we choose a false solution. We choose a counterfeit piece of comfort. As long as things are kind of calm for me, maybe that's good enough to call peace. Maybe I shouldn't aim for or hope for more than that. But peace, shalom, this thing that we're made for, that Jesus calls us to be makers of that we're supposed to bring into this broken world, it's not just the absence of conflict, it's not even the presence of comfort because here outside of Eden where we find ourselves, things need to be knit back together. And there isn't peace until there is justice and restoration and forgiveness until that knitting back together happens. And so to make peace for us has to come through restorative justice. Now, let me take a minute and just define that term biblically because that term justice is used a lot. And when it's defined incorrectly, I think it can actually move us away from honoring God and loving people rather than toward that. So let me take a moment and just define justice biblically. There are two words in the Old Testament that could be used to define what we think of when we think of justice. The first is mishpat. This is taking up the cause of the vulnerable. In the Old Testament, it's usually four groups of people, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. This is what scholars have called the quartet of the vulnerable. Why those four? Well, in a pre-modern agrarian society, these are the people that lived at a subsistence level and had no social power, no social protection. And so if there was any famine or political strife or military strife, they almost certainly would be in the threat of starvation. And so the call of God's people from the beginning and throughout the scriptures is to look around for those that are most vulnerable and use whatever power you have to care for those who have less but are equally made in the image of God. So today in our city, that list might look different, but the call is not. Do the work of seeing the vulnerable and acting on their behalf. That's what you might call doing justice. But there's another word. This word is zedekah. 
It's what's translated most often in the scriptures as righteousness. And there's a personal morality aspect to that, certainly, living uh, morally in a way that is right in comparison to to God's law. But it's more than that. It's righteousness in our day-to-day living in which our personal relationships are conducted with fairness and equity and generosity. It's what you might call being just. And so fixing what is broken and also living in a way where the world is less in need of fixing because relationships with God and others are right. That's justice. And so when the scriptures tie those two things together, justice and righteousness, as they do a couple of dozen times, that's what you might call restorative justice. Active movement toward the restoration of shalom that points to the God of peace. That's what the church is called to. That's what we are called to. That's the on earth mandate. When Jesus prayed, he prayed, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the bar for us. That's the bar for peacemaking. And when we set the bar too low, when we choose that counterfeit piece of comfort, it doesn't just leave us neutral. It doesn't just leave us where we are. It actually moves us away from restorative justice that brings peace and shalom into the world. Let me explain. I recently was driving down the road and my car window just started to go down slowly, which is not a good thing. And so I hit the little button that, that tells it, no, you're supposed to go back up, uh, and, and it wasn't responding, which is also a bad thing. And so as I'm hitting the button for it to go back up, my window is slowly and sadly descending into my door until it disappears completely. I had no control, uh, up, down, nothing. And so I drove the rest of the way home with my window open, and when I got home, I grabbed the top of it and kind of pulled it up and put duct tape around the frame to, to keep it up because duct tape fixes everything. Uh, by the way, this temporary fix has been about six months now. I still have duct tape on my window. Now, there's a way of thinking of this that would say, this is a terrible injustice that I have just experienced. Because I've deposited good. I have been good to to my kids. I'm relatively good to my wife. I'm comparatively a good boss to my employees. God, I've deposited good. You're supposed to protect me from this atrocity, this injustice of a broken car window. But I grew up in a place where I had access to education. And the people around me had access to education. I'm blessed with employment. And so I have the ability to maybe even save a little while, maybe not instantly, but I could save a little while and I could get that repair done to my car. And I can access people that have education that can do that work for me. I can, with a little delay, get my car fixed. And I can choose not to because my basic health and my basic needs aren't compromised if I have duct tape on my car window. Injustice would be having none of that. A broken car window is not injustice. It's an inconvenience. And we can confuse inconvenience and injustice pretty easily in the things that happen to us, in the words that are said to us. And if we do that, if we confuse inconvenience with injustice, we will miss conversations we should humbly enter into. We will uh, potentially start to steamroll people and feel very justified in lashing out at them because how dare you do something or say something that makes me uncomfortable? My peace is at stake here. And if we do that, we'll never see the injustice around us, not the injustice we participate in or the injustice that happens to people around us that we should care about because we will keep turning inward 
and, and seeking our own comfort and calling that peace enough. Peacemaking is going to take more than that. There are a lot of inconveniences that we're experiencing right now, but when we talk about peacemaking, we have to ask an important question. Are we seeking true biblical peace, and for whom are we seeking it? One of the areas of our country that we're wrestling with right now, one of these places of division, is around racial injustice, and particularly violence against black men and women. And at Summit, we want to be a community of people that's following Jesus, that's, that's seeking to be peacemakers and bringers of shalom and restorative justice into this world. So part of that work for us has been engaging in conversations on race and unity together. And as we've been engaging in these conversations on race and unity together, a timeline uh, uh, came, came in front of me. I, I, I saw it. And it wasn't as though the information was new, but the way it was presented has absolutely rocked me. And I, and I want to share it with you. The timeline starts in 1619. That's when the first African slaves were brought aboard an English ship to the colony of Virginia. And it shows the amount of time that systems were created and laws were passed around the idea of the inferiority of and utility of and need to separate specifically black people in the United States from 1619 to 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, which led to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 15 generations. The time since, three generations, only three. Now, this isn't the full picture. It isn't the full story. This isn't even the only thing that deserves our attention, but it is an important part of the story. And as someone who is a follower of Jesus, called to be a peacemaker, what do I do with this information? Is it possible that what was for so long still shapes thinking, my thinking, my interactions with my family members, the trajectory of my loved ones? Is it possible that this has led to lack of peace for some? And when we look at this timeline and I ask those questions, how does it make you feel? Uncomfortable? It does me. But if it does make us uncomfortable, and this is crucial, what do we do with that discomfort? Do we try to disprove, dissect, dismiss the words to get back to how we felt before the knowledge so that our personal sense of comfort, of peace can be restored? Do we lean back or do we lean in? That answer matters. And I think it has something to do with how interested we are in shalom and how we might be choosing a counterfeit peace. Now, at this point, you very possibly are saying, is it just all bad news? Is that what this is? Is this just all bad news? My youngest son, Joe Lee, came uh, flying into my bedroom the other day, as he usually does. It's the only room in the house that has carpet, and so he likes to Superman leap and kind of jump onto the floor. So I was on, on my bed, and he comes Superman leaping in like he normally does, and he pops up, and he says, I've got good news and bad news. This is never a good thing when Joe Slee does this. And so I said, okay, let's get the, the bad news out of the way first. And he said, there's no towels to go out to the pool. No problem. That's not, a, that's not a big deal. I said, okay, well, what's the good news? And he pauses for a second. And he says, actually, it's, it's two bad newses and one good news. It's like, okay, well, let's make it a good news sandwich. Let's go bad news as the bread. So bad news, good news, bad news. So go ahead and give me the good news. And then he pauses for another second. And he says, actually, it's just 
two bad newses. There's no good news. Um, and I, I just lost it. The, the second bad news was something about how he was figuring out how durable something is by breaking it. Because honestly, in his defense, how do you know how durable something is unless you break it? Uh, but I'll never forget him saying, it's just two bad newses. There's no good news. I know it might feel like there's no good news, that it's all bad news. That isn't the case. There is so much good news that we can bring in to this. When Jesus came into the world, a world wrought with division, with this dull sense that God could do anything, but probably never would show up again, the heavens opened up and an angel choir announced, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. The peace that we couldn't make for ourselves showed up for us. Let's look at how Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 14, he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He's made the two groups one by destroying the barrier. Now, these two groups, uh, in first century, uh, if you were Jewish, you had two categories of people, Jewish and everyone else. And so what Paul is saying is God made all one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose in doing this was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You know what this means? This means the sacrifice of Jesus is big enough to restore what was lost in Eden. People's relationship with God and our relationships with each other, bringing back peace and giving us a way forward. Jesus, the King who saves us from ourselves, courageously sacrificed to make peace, to inaugurate what Isaiah the prophet called a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Romans chapter 12 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the scriptures. And it starts off this way. In light of God's mercy, in light of what we just looked at in Ephesians, that Jesus tore down the dividing wall, that he is our peace. In light of that mercy, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. And then the rest of Romans chapter 12, he lays out how to live that out practically. And in verse 18, so important, he says, in view of God's mercy, here's how you live in the world, not just inside the church, not just with with those that are part of the family of faith, with everyone, keeping an eye on God's mercy. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. I love that verse. I love how Paul is being really, really straight with us. Keep in mind, Jesus is our peace. Because we can't make peace on our own. We live lives of worship, and here's how we do it. We live at peace with everyone as much as we can. Sometimes, though, Paul's being clear, it isn't possible to be at peace with everyone. But sometimes it is. And sometimes it doesn't depend on you. But sometimes it does. For us, as the church, Jesus' representative and reflection of his light in this world, there is a price that has to be paid for peacemaking. If we're going to be peacemakers, we're going to have to sacrifice to do it. Jesus did. We're going to have to lay down our ego and our desires, probably our comforts to make peace. We're going to have to be courageous more than we're comfortable. 
Because peace isn't made in personal comfort. If it was, Jesus wouldn't have had to take on a cross, and he wouldn't ask his followers to take one up either. Last week, we looked at how peacemaking takes the sacrificial act of forgiveness. I want to add to that this week. Let's add to that the courageous act of empathy. Rather than seeking most personal comfort, we should display courageous empathy, courageously caring for others to try to understand others, how they feel and why they feel it. When Jesus came upon Lazarus's family after he had died, shortest verse in all the scriptures, Jesus wept. He grieved with those who were grieving. And he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he saw their pain and he entered into it and he said, I understand the sting of brokenness in this world and I feel this with you. He, he didn't say get some perspective. He feels the hurt with them. He didn't belittle them. See, I think this is a beautiful example of biblical empathy that leads to restorative action. It's being willing to say, I haven't walked a mile in their shoes, but I do wonder what it's like. Remember, peacemaking isn't finding the absence of conflict it's or, or in pursuing our own comfort. It's actively knitting things back together and empathizing with someone's pain, with their hopes, with their needs, is a powerful beginning of that work. Someone once asked the anthropologist Margaret Mead, what is the first sign of civilization that we found? And people supposed that maybe she would talk about art or a tool or a primitive form of government. What she responded was a human thigh bone. That's the first sign of civilization. They had found a fractured thigh bone that had been set and healed. A healed fracture, that's the first sign of civilization. For a person to survive a broken femur, the individual has to have been cared for. Someone would have had to provide shelter and food and, and, and water and drink and over an extended period of time uh, for that kind of healing to be possible. So for me, the first indication of human civilization is empathy that leads to care over time for someone who is broken and in need. So with courageous empathy as our starting point, who do you need to make peace with? Where do we as a church need to take peace to? Where do we need to knit something broken back together? Where do we need to step into division and extend love and care in the brokenness? Where do we need to be humble and gentle and patient, as Paul calls us to in Ephesians 4? Where is it up to you to be at peace with someone? And let me be really clear. This is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying live and let live, don't rock the boat, passivity won't make peace. If Jesus hadn't acted, we wouldn't have any of it. What I'm saying is that we should try to understand the lives and the motivations of those we might not naturally agree with. Because the world asks us to divide people up and decide who's good and who is your enemy. Jesus was busy turning enemies into family. So are those protesting racial injustice, are they the enemy? Are they your enemy? Are those not protesting racial injustice, are they the enemy? Are they your enemy? Jesus said, love your neighbor, but he also said, love your enemy 
in Matthew 5, right after he said, blessed are the peacemakers. So let me be clear. If following Jesus is leading you to hate anyone, it's not Jesus you're following. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he meant it. He actually meant to actually love your enemies, not just villainize them and move on, not ignore them and say, I'll ignore them. That's Christianly enough for me to do. We shouldn't settle for less than peace. And we shouldn't aim to be right more than we're willing to love. My ministry mentor and friend, Jason, who died a couple of years back, uh, wrote in response to the deaths of Alton Sterling and uh, Philando Castile, uh, he, he wrote this, and it's still so powerful to me today. We can fix this, not quickly or even this year, but we can fix this. White, black, brown, Republican, Democrat, independent, we can fix this if we want to, if we're willing to listen to each other, if we submit ourselves to each other in love, if we admit the past is real and declare we want something different, if we live up to our ideals and admit, and admit where we fall short, if we let go of pride and embrace the suffering of others, if we love the other more than we defend ourselves, if we work for the common good, we can fix this if we want to. But it won't happen on our own strength regardless of how you feel about your party's nominee. There have been 8,000 peace treaties made and broken between people in the last 4,000 years. We need more than us. We need to be transformed by the peace bringer to even want to be peacemakers. But as we want it, maybe peacemaking looks like putting down resentment and asking God for wisdom and how to speak positivity into injustice in our city, in our country, in our world, to help restore God's peace there to the blessing of the people around us. Maybe it looks like stepping into an uncomfortable conversation and humbly saying, tell me more. My wife does this, I've seen it, it is absolutely incredible. When there's a conversation that could be heated or contentious, my wife will just say, will you tell me more about that? Tell me more about why. T tell me about your feelings. And, and it creates this, this space for relationship that just isn't there otherwise. It, it's as though um, uh, uh, trust grows proportional to empathy. And I've seen it, and it's absolutely amazing. Just asking that question, will you tell me more? It's a blessing. Maybe it looks like being able or willing to uh, create a third category. There's right and there's wrong, but there's also different. When we send teams to Africa to serve alongside our, our global partners there, we encourage team members. Uh, we say, look, you're gonna experience things that are different. Be generous with the third category. There's right and wrong. Absolutely, there are things that are right and wrong. And we should be honest and, and, and not hide those things. But there's a third category. And we should be generous with what we put in that category. This is different than what I'm used to or how I have thought. But that category gives understanding and relationship and unity space. It might be uncomfortable. It's certainly inconvenient. But there's a blessing in that. And I don't think this is a posture we should just take when we fly halfway around the world. 
See, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he wasn't saying, I'll be a blessing vending machine. You be a peacemaker and I'll distribute blessing to you. He's more talking about how things actually are. There is blessing that we experience when we actively pursue restorative justice in the big issues and in the everyday spaces. And a bit of Eden returns to the here and now when we pursue peace together and we get to enjoy it as well. We're blessed by it. And after all this, it's possible that you're saying, no thanks, I'm not interested. I don't wanna engage in this. Here's what I would ask. And I'll ask nice, please pick up the gospel of Luke. Read a chapter a day, read half a chapter a day, read a couple of verses a day. But in Luke, look for all the places that Jesus made peace, for whom he made peace, how he made peace. And as you read it, ask God to grow empathy in you if he wants to. Take an open-handed posture. Because we're not called to just receive peace for ourselves through the sacrifice of Jesus who reconciles us to God for our own comfort. Having received peace, we are called to extend it to, to make it for others. And let's not forget what Jesus said the result will be when we make peace. The world notices it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Imagine what it would look like, how noticeable it would be that in this divided, contentious world, we spoke peace, a peaceful, act, a peaceful action, a peaceful word, a sacrificial act. Imagine how noticeable it would be. God knew we would be here in this time and place in history with all these complexities and all these challenges. And he said, I'm putting you there to be peacemakers, to love your enemies, to extend empathy. And when peace grows from that fertile soil of empathy, when we as the church, as peacemakers, create beautiful conversations rather than than, than throwing out cheap digs at each other when we restore and we repair, when we're not overcome with evil, but we overcome evil with good in every single space, when we choose people over platforms, when we cho choose courage over comfort. When we do that, we have a shot. We have a shot of pointing people to the Jesus that came into this world to bring shalom, and we have a shot to turn this world upside down in love for God's sake. Peace.